This is reaction. Movements, moments, and monsters of the reactionary right. It's become a popular sentiment that the political landscape in the United States is more fractured than ever. I'm not sure I buy it. After all, we did have that small affair called the Civil War, and you might remember the worldwide fight against fascism back in the 1940s, which took place at home as well as abroad. Tens of thousands of robed Klansmen marching in major cities in the 1920s, race riots in the 1960s, the Battle of Seattle in 1999. Political divisions in this country are nothing new. But there's no doubt that the country has been dragged further to the right in the last 40 years, and the two-party rule under which we all live is more dysfunctional than ever. The promise of New Deal liberalism has essentially shriveled away to nothing. Culture wars that were fought and won decades ago are back with a vengeance. As employment becomes less reliable and sustaining, the safety net gets smaller. The right has gotten very good at learning from the left, adapting its tactics to respond to liberalism and leftism in a way that helps them govern effectively, to occupy huge swaths of government even when their electorate is the minority, even when their policies hurt the very people who put them in office. The left, on the other hand, seems to have had a difficult time learning from the right. Liberals in particular have long been criticized for failing to rise to the occasion in the face of the conservative movement. And the wins liberals do get are often too little, too late. While Republicans promise to fight every progressive reform tooth and nail, Democrats are forever chasing some bipartisan compromise in what increasingly feels like a snipe hunt. Republicans take their cues from the fringes of their party, knowing they can count on more moderate supporters to fall in line. Meanwhile, Democrats run from their left flank as if they're a bunch of lepers who could infect the party. Each election cycle, they convince themselves that they'll win over a few reasonable right-of-center voters, and sometimes they do. But more and more, those small wins just aren't enough to compete with a highly disciplined and ruthless conservative front. That dynamic has never been more on display than in the election of Donald Trump. Hillary Clinton had actually hoped to face Trump in the general, thinking it would be an easy victory. The pundit class and Democratic machine were utterly shocked by his win. Every poll indicated that Clinton would win handily, and there was an accepted wisdom that Trump was just too extreme, too divisive, too vulgar and uncouth to win the votes of the coveted American moderate. And it's true that when polled, slightly more moderates reported that they supported Clinton over Trump. But in the end, Trump had a groundswell of support from the right flank of his party, And even now, after his loss in 2020 and the supposed shame of the January 6 riots, the conservative element of the GOP overwhelmingly supports him as leader of the party. Moderate Republicans are more divided over Trump, but if passed as prologue, the party will take its cues from its activist right wing. And the Overton window shifts just a bit further. It's overly simplistic to describe all ideologies as either left or right, But it's also kind of necessary to explain this political moment. And one of the biggest differences between the left and the right is that the left activates against the status quo and the right responds to the left. That's sort of the nature of progressivism versus conservatism. 
Progressives want to change the way things are now, and conservatives want to fight that change and roll it back whenever possible. At its most extreme, this tension can be called revolutionary versus counter-revolutionary. And we call that counter-revolutionary force reactionary. If you treat conservatism as its own political force that operates the same way progressivism does, you miss a big part of the picture. Take healthcare, for example. The progressive, and here I'm referring to basically anyone left of center, a clumsy definition, but just bear with me. The progressive looks at the state of healthcare and wants to improve it. More people getting dignified care more often. The conservative looks not to the state of healthcare today, but to the changes the progressive proposes. The very root of the word conserve tells you all that you need to know. The conservative may also dislike the state of healthcare today, but the key difference is that they think it's better than any alternative. In 1947, leader of the UK Conservative Party Winston Churchill spoke in opposition to the Labour Party's attempt to nationalize the steel industry. He famously told the House of Commons, "Democracy is the worst form of government, except for all those others that have been tried." The statement accomplishes two things. It implies that Labour was trying to undermine democracy by seizing power during an emergency. But he was also making a more basic argument. You can't improve upon the status quo. In the years since, many a conservative thinker has applied the quote to capitalism, the worst economic system in history, except for all the others. The reactionary mind doesn't insist that the world is just and equitable, nor that it should be. In fact, it embraces the opposite. The best society is one that allows the cream to rise to the top. That elevates the great man whose inventiveness and superiority improves the lot of his inferiors. It rewards the good and punishes the bad. It assures equality of opportunity, not equality of outcome. Though, of course, the former is in short supply, often by design. Few things predict an individual's future wealth better than the zip code they grow up in. Another element of the reactionary mind is a feeling of embattlement. Conservatives are always on the ropes, fighting for life in a world that seeks to destroy them. They are the last line of defense against civilizational collapse. Even when they hold the most power in society, the reactionary is always on the brink of extermination, always asked to sacrifice too much to the despotic rule of the progressive. In our first series, we'll look at the labor uprisings of the Gilded Age, a time of grotesque inequality when workers demanded better wages and safer conditions. The capitalist class insisted that it couldn't afford to meet these demands. To the workers, the luxurious train cars they were building for industrialists suggested otherwise. In our second series, we'll hear the story of the brutally oppressed white man, ruled over by Jewish and black people until great men rise up and end their subjugation. Nixon appeals to the silent majority. Trump is the victim of the worst witch hunt in American history. Socialists are always just on the horizon, poised to steal your guns, your schools, your rights. There's a tension in reactionary thought, though, between returning to the past and building a new future. The left doesn't have a monopoly on utopia, but the past that the conservative longs for usually never existed, or at least is idealized—a distorted image. That's because the right has to do something that the left doesn't have to. It has to sublimate progressivism. It has to answer the question posed by the left. 
If the status quo creates the conditions for revolution, it can't simply be ignored. The world has to change, at least a little, or the masses get restless. Sometimes this change is purely rhetorical. The conservative shifts the narrative so that the progressive proposal threatens your very way of life, or creates bigger problems than it solves. Sometimes it's material. The Southern strategy gave a deteriorating Republican Party a new base in the South by pitting white workers against black workers and sowing fear of racial integration and unionism among their base. And of course, a tax cut here and there doesn't hurt. Nothing invigorates a stagnant right wing more than a vibrant left wing, which is why we see so many growth spurts among reactionary movements during times of social upheaval and change. You'll see this in our series on Phyllis Schlafly, when a Republican party deflated by the Watergate scandal found new life in the anti-feminist crusade. The building of American Confederate monuments spikes twice in the 20th century, the early 1900s and the 1960s, both times of intense civil rights agitation. The father of reactionary conservatism, Edmund Burke, was writing in direct response to the French Revolution of 1789. In his 1790 political pamphlet, Reflections on the Revolution in France, he wrote, The very fabric of a new government is enough to fill us with disgust and horror. We wished at the period of revolution, and do now wish, to derive all we possess as an inheritance from our forefathers. But Burke knew things couldn't go back to the old way. Like the revolutionaries, he was critical of the aristocracy. But he didn't seek to replace it with equality and certainly not communism. No liberté, égalité, fraternité for him, thank you. A social order of superiors and inferiors was right and just, but it should be one based on merit, not birth. Burke subsumes the question of the revolution, how can we build a more just society, and offers his conservative answer, by preserving the old order in a new way. In chemistry, when two substances are introduced to each other, they both change, sometimes with a little heat or light. This is called a chemical reaction. It's an innate response. The same happens in politics and culture more broadly. That reaction is what this show is all about. It's not just about the history of conservative movements, but about how they form in a particular context. The left asks a question, and the right answers it. Progressives envision a new world, conservatives hearken back to an old one. Revolutions make history. Counter-revolutions make reality. Thanks for listening to this episode of Reaction. If you like the show, please rate and review it. And consider supporting my work by visiting patreon.com slash reactionpodcast. There you can find all the episode scripts, as well as bonus audio content that supplements the main episodes. Follow the show on Twitter at Reaction Podcast for episode updates, and send your questions or feedback to reactionpod at gmail.com. This show is written and produced by me, Brittany Gill. Until next time...